Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Taha Lokandwala, Deputy Personal Finance Editor Investors Chronicle, and Tim Stubbs, Independent Investment Consultant at TS Investments. Emerging markets have not traditionally been thought of as a good source of income, but there are a few funds focused on these regions that do have an attractive yield, and these include Utilico Emerging Markets Trust. Taha, what level of yield does this trust offer? I don't know. So the um, the trust offers a yield of 3.3%, which is, as you said, quite unusual for an emerging market kind of strategy. It's, there's often thought to be very growth-focused and not very income. Uh, you know, the companies are, are quite new compared to ones you see in developed market. But when you when you look at the underlying stocks in this in this trust, it kind of makes a bit more sense. Okay, so um, if emerging markets aren't, you know, particularly associated with income, how does Utilico Emerging Markets Trust's manager manage to generate this attractive yield? Charles Jilling, the manager, he um, he doesn't actually do anything to maintain the yield. Um, he he even advocates and saying this isn't a dedicated income trust. He's you know he he jokes about you know people talking about wanting to rename the trust to income, but it's not the focus. But what he what it does do is buy very cash generative businesses, and these are normally utility companies or infrastructure stocks. Um, so these companies have really kind of high fixed costs, but once those fixed costs have, are taken care of, they are just entirely cash generative and therefore really good income stocks. Okay, uh, sounds interesting. So what would be an example of um, one of these cash generative businesses? So the one the one Mr. Jing talks about quite a lot is, uh, is Shanghai Airport. So Shanghai is um, obviously a huge Chinese city, but it's actually growing at a higher rate than the Chinese average. And uh, Mr. Jing talks about the kind of the middle class, the Chinese middle class that you have in Shanghai. They are they kind of they have a lot more disposable income and air travel is one of the things that they're kind of focused on so shanghai airport is growing uh, and therefore its revenue is growing and therefore its dividend is growing as well okay um uh, what other types of infrastructure does the trust invest in almost almost everything you can think of so it has uh, kind of exposure to water to sewage electricity um electricity actually accounts for 24 percent of the trust and gas works accounts for about 17 so kind of the staple kind of infrastructure and kind of utility stocks that you would expect. Now, you mentioned, obviously, the trust has a holding in China, um, but it invests across emerging markets. So what other particular areas does um, Charles Jillings like? So he's a big fan of Brazil, although he will definitely state this isn't a kind of macro position. They are they are bottom stock pickers, but they have just found lots of opportunities in Brazil, which accounts for about 23% of the fund. Um, Romania... Um, which is, again, not something you would expect to appear quite a lot. Mm-hmm. actually accounts for 10% of the fund. And so Brazil, there's, a, there's a, a few kind of fundamental reasons. So, yeah, as I said, it is the companies, but also it's kind of come out of um, a bit of an economic turmoil and it's doing quite well at the moment. OK, so what would be an example of a Brazilian holding in um, Utilico Emerging Markets Trust? So he's got quite an interesting one called Rumo. And what Rumo does is a kind of it's a rail logistics firm. So what he does, it transports goods um, across Brazil, via the rail network. Uh, Mr. Jilling tells a quite interesting anecdote um, where he talks about Brazil, Brazilian car traffic being so heavy so it's impossible to use the road network to transport goods. So he thinks that there's a good opportunity for Rumo to, to keep growing its revenues here. Um, Brazil's a big exporter of certain things like soya and they are they transport quite a lot of soya across Brazil to the ports and it gets shipped out to well, places like China, actually. So. Okay, so um, looking good in Brazil. Um, but what does Charles Jillings think of the prospects for emerging markets worldwide? 
Uh, naturally, he's he's quite bullish, but he he accepts there's some risks. So you see, kind of political interference from Donald Trump. Trade wars is a is a word we're hearing more and more, and he he's kind of conscious of these. And you've got you know, he he has exposure in the Middle East, and the Middle East is politically sensitive, and no one really knows what's what's going to happen there. But he he stresses that you need to look towards the fundamentals. So the economic growth, particularly in the regions he's heavily exposed to, like China and Brazil, is is still you know is relatively strong. Also, inflation is quite benign, interest rates quite benign. So he, he thinks there's a there's a good foundation, particularly for these kind of infrastructure and utility stocks that are more likely to to kind of do well in these environments. Okay, so he's uh, fairly optimistic. Absolutely. But Tim, what do you think of the prospects for emerging markets and are they a good area to invest in just now? Yes, I, th- I think on a medium to long-term view, um, emerging markets should should well, seem to be priced to provide strong returns going forwards. There are, as you'd expect, cheaper areas of the market and many traditional value stocks look to be particularly cheap and to look, up, to, look to offer. Um, particularly strong returns on that kind of medium to long-term view. I'd say that the tech area of the market, which now things like Tencent, Alibaba, Baidu, which now represents over a quarter of the emerging markets benchmark index, perhaps is something of a bubble. So that's one area uh, from an investment perspective I'd be very light on. Um, So, I mean, yes, I think the long-term prospects look to be quite good, especially on the back of five years in doldrums before the the pickup of 2016 and 17. Um, are they a good area to invest in just now? I think now there are some shorter-term risks we've seen in the last week or so, not least the dollar's rallied and we've seen that some self-inflicted problems in Argentina and, and Turkey have, have led to those two nations in particular seeing their, their currency sell off, um, albeit, of, of course, um, they are a weaker, let's say, weaker structure, structurally weaker emerging market countries with, with less good fundamentals. So you'll always see differences between them. Um, so I was going to say that in the short term, perhaps there could be some some slight risks. So I'd say that you know, in the long term, I think it should be good. So if there's any kind of if any investors have any doubt about the shorter term, they can always dip a toe in, and with a view to potentially buying a lot more on a on a meaningful correction, let's say. Okay, so I mean that's a big picture. But um, turning back to income, do you um, agree that emerging markets are a good source of equity income? As a generalisation, I think it's it's not the primary reason one should seek to invest in emerging markets. Granted, I, I know that the Utilico Trust is seeking infrastructure-type assets generating cash flow, so it's a little bit different. But as a generalisation, I think if you chase too much yield in the emerging markets sector, you'll end up with, let's say, less dynamic, more mature companies, some state-owned companies, state-owned enterprises, that is. Um, so... Really, the, the name emerging markets, um, by definition, you're looking for countries and companies that can grow very significantly in the medium and longer term, especially. So I think you really want to have um, a focus on companies that can reinvest their earnings into growth. But equally, you know, there are some good income stocks out there, and there is a reasonable blend. You can You can achieve a you know, there is a kind of good compromise in the middle there. I'd say the primary aim should be longer term growth, but I certainly think an investor could do a lot worse than have a, a small little allocation to to receive some income, albeit I wouldn't necessarily chase too high too high a yield per se. Okay, so with that in mind, I mean, what kind of income can you sensibly get from emerging markets, and how does that compare to mm. what you might be able to get from other parts of the world? Hmm. 
Well, the MSCI Emerging Markets benchmark is yielding well, 2.3% last time I checked uh, very recently. Um, so that's not a bad starting point, but you, you can immediately see that that's well below the 3, 3.5% three um, in Europe, let's say, and 4% in the UK. So naturally, the yields offered, the starting point is lower. So that has to be borne in mind as per the, the bigger picture theme of long-term growth. You'd expect that. But I'd say as well as considering emerging market income versus other regions of the world, I'd say you also have to always be aware that emerging markets carry notable risk. So even if you do find some attractive, an attractive portfolio, good valuations, quite cheap, if anything causes a run on emerging market uh, currencies or capital flows or any usual classic stock market sentiment change, um, there's nothing to stop cheap, attractive stocks getting very cheap and attractive. So that's just another thing the income investor has to bear in mind. Final point I've just realised, excuse me, is, is that with levels of corporate governance generally weaker, um, I guess a dividend in a developed country um, is perhaps more stable, whereas in emerging markets it could be removed, let's say, um, far more easily than um, than it could be in a developed country. Okay. Now, you mentioned lower levels of corporate governments. Um, what are the other risks you um, hinted at when you were, were talking about uh, things for people to consider? Yeah, well, um, as mentioned, I'd certainly say emerging market stocks are not really so suitable for low-risk investors. And even investors of a medium risk profile, let's say, would want to have a very slight participation. Um, yeah, so we said corporate governance um, and companies that are not always run for the interests of shareholders, or, you know, say governments influencing and so on. These are things that can obviously throw up surprises and, and sometimes will lead investors to, to sell off such, such stocks. Um, it's a way up, of course. Sometimes you can find such things at cheaper valuations. Um, another, I guess, risk is that, um, I suppose, in the near term, seeing the strong performance of the last two years, if there's any kind of reversal in momentum, let's say like ETF flows have led lots of money into the, the tech areas, um, there are kind of shorter term vulnerabilities as well, potentially. Uh, I think we've probably covered most of the main risks in, in those, that little risk there, I think. Okay. Now, if you do have, let's say, the risk appetite and time horizon to invest in emerging markets, what funds would you suggest? Hmm. Well, if you're looking for um, some income um, from emerging markets, I think the Somerset Emerging Markets Dividend Growth Fund run by Edward Lamb is a is a very, very well-run, defensive, safe pair of hands funds, if you like. Fund, if you like. It yields... 2.7% at the underlying level, the companies within the portfolio. And as the name suggests, the, the manager seeks to find a blend of companies that have a, have a reasonable yield already and others that will grow dividends or are expected to grow dividends over time, and companies that are expected to perform well. The attraction to me of that fund is it's very light in China and tech in particular. The manager's shown an excellent um, downside protection versus upside capture. So he's able to generally participate in much of the upside. Um, yet in the downside period, he's generally protected against losses. Uh, he's a very conservative chap. So I think that's a good one for somebody looking for some yield. It's not the highest yield, but that's a good one to slot in, I think. And if somebody were looking for more of a value slant, let's say, in a kind of um, index base, let's say, closer to an index-based approach. There are three funds that I think are particularly good. I think the Artemis Global Emerging Markets Fund uses a quant methodology to screen and 
and has roughly 100 stocks. The 7IM Emerging Value Fund does something similar. And also the Henderson Rowe Rafi Emerging Markets Index Fund is a fund, but it seeks to track the research affiliates fundamental index in emerging market space, which is a, a benchmark that's been designed to improve upon upon the classic limitations of market cap weighted benchmarks. That is the largest, most expensive stocks taking up the biggest portion of of uh, your allocation in your fund, whereas this fund seeks to dilute those down and have tilt towards companies offering dividends and cheapest share prices based on the uh, book values and P ratio and so on. Those are four that I think are quite are quite good candidates. Okay, Tim, thank you. Some really helpful suggestions. And you can see the full interview with the Tuilico Emerging Market Trusts Manager in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and on the website. This week's portfolio clinic features a couple who are planning to do what loads of us would love to do but probably can't afford, retire early. The couple have built up a tremendous amount of assets who look like they'll be able to do it. But a very high proportion of their wealth is related to their employer, which they both work for. Tim, you reviewed this portfolio. Why do these readers have high exposure to their employer? And why do you think it's not a good idea? Yes, so the the readers in your portfolio, um, they receive share options, is my understanding, effectively from working for their companies, part of their remuneration. In um, over recent years, they've been awarded shares which have now grown notably in value um, to roughly 500, well, 500,000 pounds between the two of them out of a 1.2 million combined portfolio, which is which is naturally you know, half the half the money there. They also had pensions that are provided by their employer, but I'm less concerned about those given general protection schemes in the event of um, defined benefit schemes going under. Um, I think. I was going to say the, the reason why I think that position is not a good idea is, is just that you can see that half, virtually half of their wealth and even their employment and even their pension is tied to the prospects of one single company. And if we just look at the ultimate worst case and that company goes bust, then half a million quid is down the drain. They've probably lost their jobs. Um, maybe their pensions are kind of shaved in value. Um, and this is when you've got five years till retirement. I know that's a very extreme case. Um, so it's just something to consider. A lot of, uh, very high concentration of risk. Um, but I mean, the, the idea is not bad in itself of receiving share options. I just wonder whether over time it may be possible or may not. They may wish to dilute some of those, swap, sell them effectively and, and invest across their wider portfolio instead, having greater diversification. Okay, so, I mean, in general, then, do you think people should turn down attractive benefits such as a pension scheme and shares in an employer to avoid having too much exposure to the company they work for? I don't think they should necessarily turn anything down at all. I mean, if something's offered to you, it's it's valuable. I guess the the question is, in my opinion, the, the size of these shares are just so large now relative to their total wealth. I would seek to ask the employer if they can instead receive, let's say, higher salaries or greater pension contributions, if that's still appropriate based on um, annual limits and lifetime allowances and so on. Um, It's a case, really, of whether the employer can um, offer them the chance to still receive the same level of remuneration. Granted, it's, it's something where companies might offer share options so they don't have to pay out 
So it might be a case of if a company offers you that and it's very generous and they're not prepared to offer anything nearly as generous in cash, let's say, it might be that the best answer is to take that because you're better off. But then you just really need to plan accordingly that if effectively half a million of your your wealth is tied up in this one is one company, you may not be able to sell it, let's say, you just really need to take account of that with the remainder of your portfolio. The big risk would be as if you're just overstretched to risk assets. Okay. So um, looking at uh, the example of Regis and Viswick's portfolio, what might they be able to do to reduce their exposure to their employer? Yeah, I mean, in theory, they could consider selling a large portion of those shares just so they're not so exposed. I say in theory because it depends on the arrangements in place with their employer. Um, I'm, I'm no expert on this topic, but my general thoughts could be maybe employers will say, while you're working for us, you can have the stake, but maybe, if, I don't know if there might be penalisation if you choose to cash in the stake or if you choose to leave the company or anything like this. So it's a case of, in theory, selling down the stake would be the best thing to do for diversification. But there might be side effects of loss of some of that value and also um, there would likely be notable tax effects. So it could be quite a complicated picture where they'd really need to map out, you know, scenario one, this would be the outcome, scenario two, and they'd really need the help of a financial planner and a specialist to go through all those scenarios, if they're even available, that is. Yeah. Okay. So a number of things to take into consideration in this situation. Yes. Now, other than um, their employer pensions and shares, these readers hold a number of funds, but all of these funds are listed. Is is this a good idea to be entirely in listed funds? Yes. Yeah, so inv- investment trusts in the long run do tend to outperform. And that is because, well, amongst other things, gearing adds an extra dimension of um, drive forwards. Costs can be a bit lower. In some cases, it can be a lot more, I'd say, in investment trusts. Mm. Some investment trusts are very expensive. but It's true. Mm. Yep. It, it depends, I guess, on what they are. Mm. But I guess some some equity-based equity, equity um, vehicles can be on the economical side. I suppose it's like anything. There, yeah, there esoteric ones tend out. to have very high charges, though. Yes, exactly. They, they, I guess they need more specialist management and higher cost to, to do so, really. Um, but I think, generally, I would be less inclined to have an entire portfolio of investment trusts. And the reason is, despite maybe outperforming in the long run, um, part of the issue is the, the swings can be very large. So you can find that in a, a simple generalization is that throughout a stock market cycle of a market crash to a market peak, you'll find that in the at the peaks, you'll find that these investment trusts will be trading at either very small discounts to NAV or even premiums. And then in crisis moments, not only will the NAV fall heavily, but then the trust can also go to a notable discount, say 20, 30% to NAV in extreme cases, as happened in the financial crisis. Private equity trusts were even somewhere 80% or more. Mm. Um, so the issue really is if you hold your entire portfolio investment trust, you really could face an immense double whammy in a negative scenario. It all depends on the investor. If they can hold... If they're comfortable to just sit on that and ride it all the way through, then that's fine. But your reader here is retiring in five years. So Mm. I would suggest maybe a blend of listed investment trusts if that's what they're comfortable with and can handle it and understand it and some open-ended investment investment company funds instead. On that note, even with with an investment trust, even if the underlying asset is doing well, like you said, the share prices can have massive fluctuations. 
due to market sentiment. So would you say that investment trusts focused on alternative assets provide any meaningful diversification or because they are listed, will it just move of equity markets even if invested, let's say, in non-correlated assets? Um, it really depends what they are. I would say in general, um, most of, more than not, would likely um, move with equity markets. Um, not always the case, though, and it depends on the reputation of, of the trust in question and also liquidity is, is a critical factor. I mean, many investment trusts are less liquid, and if suddenly huge rushes for the exits, then that's ultimately what causes these price swings. And that will come at the same time as equities because that's when people are just generally trying to offload mm. anything they can, irrespective of what it is, and irrespective of that, it might be diversified if someone's a fourth seller. They have to try to sell something. But then, in theory, the alternative assets that are unconnected um, should, in theory, have better qualities and be more likely to stand up. I and mean, actually, if if such assets were to fall down, at least on a share price level, that would be a very good opportunity if the underlying is actually not so connected to fortunes there. I'd say it also depends on the reputation of the trust. I mean, trust like Ruffer Investment Company, Personal Assets, Trust, capital gearing trusts are, are known for being very defensive-minded, capital preservation-type vehicles. The managers really, really don't want to lose money. And because of that and their large following, those trusts sometimes can actually move to a premium in moments of stress. So it all depends. It depends on liquidity. It depends on the individual trust and its own liquidity and what it does. But I think, yes, I think the full extent of diversification might not be there. But it will it will depend on each cycle, if you like, each each. Um, but equally, if something like that happens, it presents an opportunity too. So there are two sides to the coin. Okay. So how else would you suggest diversifying um, a portfolio's equity exposure? Yes, I mean I think one very notable observation of the last ten years is that value investing has really struggled. It's quite it, perhaps it's not surprising following the crisis. People were looking for very defensive stocks, reliable, classic bond proxy growth stocks, things like Unilever. Everybody has to um, you know, wash their clothes and buy toothpaste and so on. And so everybody flocked to these reliable defensive stocks and the valuations are being bid up. And actually some, some numbers from Schroders um, who invest more in a value style have indicated that they believe that of over 2,500 global equity funds, they thought that 93% were actually in the growth style. So everybody chasing those um, safer stories, if you like. Um, and also what's been comfortable, you know, it's been a very un- horrible place to be if you're a value investor, through underperforming and continually. So there's a human psychology element there too. So I would say that you certainly don't want to be too skewed to one particular style that's worked very well in a phase of falling interest rates. So I think diversification by style, I certainly think there's room for a little bit of value exposure in a portfolio. What I about diversifying really... away from equities, mm. though? I mean, when you know, what, what about you know, alternative assets to diversify, um, you know, of mm. any you'd suggest? Non-equity yeah, assets. Definitely. I mean, I certainly think a, 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 an investment portfolio should consist of lots of asset classes, that are, let's say more modern, if you like, um, compared to the traditional equity and bonds portfolio, things like absolute return, hedge funds, um, like I said, the trusts like Ruffer, personal assets, capital gearing trusts are, are focused on capital preservation. There's certainly many things investors can do to move away from equities or at least 
have managers that are really focused on the capital preservation element. Of course, Taha said the um, Utilico Investment Trust that focuses on inv- infrastructure assets, another semi-source of diversification in the specific asset types are targeted infrastructure in this case. Commodities as well is a timely example with oil prices rising up to $80. So certainly there are things you can do um, to diversify away. And you can also consider what things would actually hurt your portfolio, what would hurt a classic portfolio. And for example, rising interest rates. If interest rates were to rise notably, that would clearly hurt bonds mathematically, and it would most likely hurt equities too, depending on the exact reason. So you can certainly look for ways to profit from things that might benefit in such a scenario. Um, let's say like financials would benefit from rising interest rates, other things equal. And um, commodities, if, if there's rising inflation, and let's say that causes right, higher interest rates, then on average you might see commodity-based um, equities expected to do better. So you can't fully escape the equity risk. You can certainly control the proportion and you can spread out the exposures quite widely amongst different types, is, is what I would suggest. Okay. Now, another issue you raised with these readers' portfolio is a lack of exposure to UK equities. Why is this a problem? Yeah, it's it's not so much of a problem, but more of a potential missed opportunity. Um, It goes without saying that Brexit, the the scaremongering, the headlines, the, the risks hanging over have led UK stocks to perform quite poorly on a global stage in recent years. Um, despite the all-time high reached yesterday. Actually, yeah. By the, the yeah so what, what it means is that the UK stocks are trading a bit more cheaply than other global developed market regions, when in all essence, let's say certainly on a FTSE 100 level, they're, they're global multinationals. So there should really be little, little reason to, to have a discount, let's say, on a, a multinational firm, unless you were really expecting severe changes at a country level, like massive corporate tax increases or anything like that. So really, I think it's just a classic case of um, there's an opportunity to the valuations there are suggesting that some decent returns could be generated on, a, say, a five-year view, 10-year view. So it's really just a case of it looks like a, a good opportunity where the, client, the, the, the reader's a little bit light in their portfolio, perhaps. Okay. Um, now, you mentioned Brexit. So, you know, have they perhaps not kept up with the UK equities, not kept up with us? Is it just Brexit or are there any other risks, let's say, weighing on uh, UK equities? It's mainly Brexit. And the Brexit risks obviously feed on to economic risks and, in the extreme case, recession. So far, the UK economy has been chugging along reasonably well and hasn't fallen apart. So the, the real issue, I, I would say that Brexit is clearly behind the bulk of the poor sentiment towards the UK. And for me, it's just a case that markets classically overshoot and overreact. So yes, there are risks, certainly higher risks than before Brexit was um, announced. But we mustn't forget that 75% of the FTSE 100 um, companies' revenues are generated from abroad. And a key key contrarian indicator is that the UK and British assets generally are, are quite hated by asset allocators generally. Mm. So that's often a very good buying signal for the long run. And the FTSE, as I mentioned, has actually rallied very strongly in the last uh, last few weeks, actually. So it's, it's 10% less attractive than it was, but there still looks to be some relative value on the table there. Okay. So other than what looks like perhaps misplaced negative sentiment, why else might UK equities perform well going ahead? 
Well, well, yes, it's, it, as I mentioned, it's a case of valuations and, and things overshooting. So many of the UK, let's say domestically slanted stocks in particular, they're priced for very bad news. They've, they've been priced, I've heard one from them just say, they've already had their Brexit based on looking at their share prices. So it's a case of if anything less bad takes place, in theory, the shares would have to rise. The expectations are so negative. And, 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 and as well, if there is a bad outcome, if much of the kind of negative hit has taken place, it might be that downside's lower than you'd otherwise expect from here. So really, it's a case of, you know, fundamentally, there are many good companies that are continuing to perform well at fundamental level, but their share prices have been battered, but their fundamental performance and profit generation is, is looking reasonable. So I think companies are good at adapting. I think they will. Um, so I think yeah, it's just a case of why the equities might perform well. It's just because perhaps they've sold down too much. Okay. Now, do you think any particular types of UK equities um, are looking particularly attractive? Yeah, I think domestically, well, the classic Brexit fallout. So anything, any stocks perceived to be um, a play on the UK domestic economy, they've been particularly hard hit. Some of them are rightly so hard hit. Let's say some of the retailers might face permanent structural challenges, say, from from online competition um, and disruption and so on. But equally, there'll be very, there'll be many good companies that, that have been baby's been thrown out with the bathwater. So I think domestics generally, um, domestically orientated stocks are looking very cheap, very attractive, but very high risk. So they've almost become classic deep value, if you like. So, so is there any particular that. sector or, or, you know, kind of size of company um, that, you know, falls yeah. into this category? Well, I think, it, I think the kind of sell-off has taken place across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think some of the mid-cap companies are more, more, position for the domestic side of things. So certainly I think selectively in mid-cap could be quite interesting. Um, I was going to say in terms of sectors, I, I generally have a preference for managers that like to um, take an overall approach to hunting out best stocks across various sectors. I, I don't want to, let's say, put my, put my um, say, this sector in particular, that because, you know, I think, I think because the market's sold off quite in a widespread fashion, I think you don't need to stick your neck out on the line too much. I'd say almost avoiding some of the, the classic expensive bond proxies and then having a diversified fund with a slight value tilt, doesn't have to be a big value tilt. I think that should be enough to, to really have a chance of some good outperformance. And if you want to spice it up with a bit of domestic exposure as a kind of smaller, let's say, satellite position in addition to a kind of core, then I think that could work quite well. What would be some examples of um, funds which do this? I think the GLG undervalued assets Fund is a, a very good fund that seeks to, well, as the name suggests, find undervalued shares. And I was quite impressed because I was doing some reading on his fund and reading his newsletters from last summer. And he'd been calling that some of the stocks were way too cheap and looked very good performers, but the stocks had been punished. And he got that spot on and there's still value there. So I think that's one that, that looks very good. The, the fund is trading at 12 times PE ratio and a price to book of 1.4 and a, a dividend yield of 3.6. So it's a kind of blend. You've got some recovery plays and special situations, but all the stocks that, that the manager, Henry Dixon, feels are undervalued by the market in, in some regard. Another one that's very topical is Neil Woodford's equity income fund. He roughly a year ago moved very much into this domestic space, judging that that's where the value lied now and 
maybe the classic Woodford, Cherna, good, consistent, steady defensive stocks got a bit too expensive uh, in part for him. So he, he found the value in the domestic. So to some extent, that's a, a good recovery. Potentially, it's, it's a case of if if the man following a, a very tough year or two has proved correct in the end, and many of his stocks do prove to, to come good. I, I just feel the real dynamic of, of this kind of fund is that the upside could be larger than the downside, let's say, albeit a lot of pain has already been taken. And there is a third fund that I think is quite good, um, a little bit more conservative, if you like, although it's a mid-cap fund. The FNC UK mid-cap fund has something of a capital preservation mindset. They're very cautious on markets generally. They're very selective and they set high hurdles on what they want to achieve from their company. So they've been very good historically at consistently um, outperforming, yet really losing less in, in market pullbacks. So I think that's one to watch. It's quite an, It's been around three years, but it's still quite a small fund. So that's one that potentially could be good if, if you want some mid-cap exposure, but you don't want to be too hard on the, on the risk, let's say. Okay. Um, with that in mind, I mean, um, are these funds only suitable for high-risk investors or could people with slightly less risk appetite look at them? I'd certainly say you don't want to have, I'd say you don't want too much of these or even very slight or maybe even none for lower risk portfolios. I'd say on a kind of medium, typical average risk portfolio, I think maybe you could slot in a very small exposure to um, to let's say one of those funds or perhaps two. But I'd say certainly the for higher risk portfolios, that's where the bulk of these should be really. the um, If you want a notable exposure to those, they should really be for higher risk portfolios. I'd say for medium risk, a slight nibble is fine, but you just be careful. So, you know, these, these are very you know, cheap value stocks that are cheap because there are natural fears. On average, they should do well, but there can be large swings. And um, so, uh, yes, I think more for higher risk investors, really. Great. Thank you, Tim. Some really good suggestions. That brings us to the end of today's show, but you can read more on emerging markets, saving for early retirement and UK equities in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and on the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.